Hello everyone, welcome to the show Behind the Wineries, our show about wines, experience, and the secret beyond wines. In our last episode, we talked about the whole assessment process about tasting, featuring some interesting phenomena we saw during our experience. So if you haven't listened yet, make sure you grab a glass and listen to it. So in today's episode, we're going to talk about tons of wine myths, such as does the higher price of the wines stand for a better quality? We'll see. And there's one more thing important. Uh, today's episode is very special because we have our first special guest on the show. Yay! So today's guest is someone we've known for a while. Personally, she's one of the super talented white people I knew on the earth besides Joe. And I've learned so much from her during the wine journey in MBA school. So she's Fiona Ching from Taiwan as me. And she has recently become the prestigious Italian wine ambassador and with many other professional wine experience experience internationally as well. Let Fiona introduce herself a little bit. <laughs> oh, thank you. That was such a great... Oh my gosh, I, I, feel, I feel a little shy. So yeah, hello, this is Fiona. I'm from Taiwan. So I started my wine journey about six years ago. Uh, first, I went to Italy to start to learn how to cook. But then I started out for the quest for the best pasta in Italy, but then I ended up falling in love with wine. So that's where the story started. I've been working in wine in Taiwan, in Singapore, and then now landing in France. And I've been living in Dijon since 2021. And then... I would say I'm very lucky and uh, yeah, I'm very, very blessed and uh, yeah, I'm just happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Fiona, for joining us today on the show. It's very exciting for us to have you, not just because, you know, you have shared the path with Emily and Joe during pursuing you folks' passion and professional career in wine, but also because we would love to hear your perspective into this world of wine. And in today's topic, we are going to be demystifying some of the most known myths around wine. We're going to be covering a broad number of topics. We're going to be going through some of the most common things people have heard about wine, regardless of the level of expertise. So a few of the topics that we're going to cover today go from like the typical, you know, like higher price wines have the higher quality, things that just are very, very broad. So without further ado, let's kick it off with the first myth. Myth number one is more expensive wine, higher quality. AKA quality, it's correlated with price. Should we start with Fiona, our guest? <laughs> yeah, our guest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The truth is, I wouldn't know because, I mean, like, how expensive do you think is expensive, right? For me, the most expensive one I've ever had maybe is like 600 euros, but then in comparison with some other really expensive wine, it's actually somehow affordable. But the thing is that, that one experience wasn't as much as I would have wanted because there was just so much hype about these expensive wines, right? So you have a lot more expectation about the quality. But then in the end, it's really about what you like. So even though it was great to have be able to taste it, that wine, 
but for me i'm happy with my 30 year old 20 year old entry-level vocal original or just like um like any violo so that's my take yeah i don't know what do you think yeah definitely it's great because like I think my most expensive wine I've ever tasted is probably like 200 something. Uh-huh. I never taste like more than that. So I wouldn't say that's super ex- expensive compared to in the world, wine of the world. Yeah, Romandi Comte. Mm, not, not having any chance yet. Yeah. But I would say because the expensive wine, as we say, we always having more expectation for that tasting experience. Yeah. So you will have more different kind of uh, imagination. Yeah. But when you have that, say, you know, normal price, my normal price is sitting around like 15 to 20. Yeah. So around that price. You can get something really nice. Exactly. And when you get something nice around that price range, you actually being more satisfied. Yeah. I don't know if you guys feel that way. What about you guys over there thinking? Yeah, no, I, I think anybody could go out and buy the most expensive bottle of wine on a restaurant's wine list or in a store. But the true talent is identifying the wines to your guys's point about what you enjoy what is your price point and budget and that's that's really what it comes down to and that's all about education and experience in the, in the wine world the most expensive wine that we've had was four thousand euros uh, a bottle and we did a barrel tasting outstanding experience we can't mention the name of this place on our podcast because we we're asked to by the owners not to talk about this experience because it was so private and so you know random kind of thing so but their wine was fantastic out of the barrel and just fantastic wine. But would I be comfortable paying 4,000 euros for a bottle of wine? Absolutely not. And to your both points is I will find something that's in the, let's say 15 to 35 euro or 35 franc uh, for Switzerland range that you can drink and not feel super bad about. But every once in a while splurging on, you know, especially if you're at a restaurant on something around a hundred is okay. But yeah, I will not go out of my way and buy those big bottles of wine. They're really expensive ones. But to your point, Joe and Fiona and Emily, I think like you three touch upon several components that go into the price of a bottle of wine. So it's not only the quality. So to domesticate the first myth, you know, like price not necessarily is a representation of the quality. And some, you know, winemakers have gone out and create brands and presence and history and adds to the value of a bottle, right? So, and also to Fiona's point, when she said, like, you, you know, like you are a restaurant, so you are paying for an experience for, you know, a nice dinner, uh, maybe like a little treat for yourself. So price goes way, way beyond just the wine. Yep. All right. So... Myth number two, that it's also related to these conceptions, screw caps. Oh, <laughs> the Pandora's box explosion right here. <laughs> are we really going We're there? Going yes. Here. Okay, let's go. The myth is screw caps are indicators of low quality. Totally agree. No, just kidding. (laughs) Absolutely not. I think screw caps have a bad reputation, especially for the really cheap bottles of wine itself for two, three dollars a piece that are just awful wines. Um, They're with screw cap because it's you don't need a tool to open it up. You can do it on the run. You could do it on the street, uh, you know, so it was one of those really utilitarian kind of things and it's cheaper. But if you're in Australia, 
you're not finding too many corks out there at all, uh, maybe in Margaret River. And it's not indicative of a poor quality wine. In fact, there are some fantastic, ridiculously fantastic wines in Australia, New Zealand that are come with a screw cap. I think the problem is, is in restaurants, especially in the old world, this whole idea of this experience of the sommelier coming out and showing you the wine and uncorking it and letting you smell the cork and this whole presentation where instead of a screw cap, Open, there you go. Here's your wine. You know, enjoy, you know. So I, I do not agree that uh, screw caps are cheaper or in any way indicative of quality. Yeah, I think we can all agree on that. It's just stereotypical. Plus, yeah. yeah. And I think plus more and more wineries. So for wine lovers, they're also saying it reduce the risk of being cork tan or any kind of extra oxidation that the wines might be getting because you never know i mean like i don't think i ever have cork tan wine in my life yet oh, you're lucky with that reasons and with some other like you know environmental reasons i don't think that screw caps will stand for the low quality where it means cheap wine in general it's just to the point of uh, the whole experience i think that does change a little bit how people see that I think we all agree on this. I mean, I would just debunk that. It doesn't really represent quality for us. Yeah. So that was myth number two. Let's go for myth number three. And we're going to stay along the lines of quality. So wine that comes from a single biodiesel or a single plot is better quality over blends. Dun, 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 dun. People from Bordeaux. <laughs> I think I'm not agree with single varietal stands for better wine because here I'm in Bordeaux, so I drink blends wine <laughs> almost every day. But someone's next to me from Burgundy is not agree with me. But <laughs> no, you know, blending is art. Oh, yeah. So yes, but making you... good wine is also art. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so Emily, you agree? Yeah. Single variety means quality. No, no, no. I do not agree with that. Single varietal, no. But single plus, I think it really depends on where we are talking about because. It can go back to another words we talked last time, and we might talk later the terroir, which we talk so many in Burgundy, and there's some plots with the name on the label, and it does taste really good. So it means probably the wines from there they have some specific terroir things. So I think the plots yes and no, but depends on where we talk about. What do you think? You don't agree with my varietal? <laughs> well, because from my personal experience, I love single varietal wines.、Mm. For example, like where we were in Burgundy, it's always Pinot Noir, it's always Chardonnay, it's always Gamay, it's always Aligoté.、Yeah. And for Italian wine, my favorite region is Piemonte. So the wines Barolo, Barbaresco, and Dolcetto, Barbera,、mm. they are all made into single varietal wine. Most of them are made into single varietal. And for me, I like the purity.、Mm. I would like to know how a grape variety could be pushed into its fullest expression, and that brings us to the discussion of single plot. For me, it's also a way of expression. So it doesn't necessarily mean it's better. But even though in the grape variety, I <laughs> I do feel like single. But okay, maybe I'm sort of contradicting myself. But it's all about different kinds of approach, and then the purity, the expression. So that's my take on this one. I don't know what do you think. 
So I'm going to go for a third perspective on this. I think neither one of them are indicative of quality at all. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I, you know, I would be careful what I say on this thing, especially, you know, if I'm welcome back into Burgundy again. So as far as the varietals are concerned, I think, you know, winemakers and, and the grape growers take what Mother Nature gives them. And in Burgundy, the weather there can get really awful. And and year over year, there's huge vintage variation and you get what you can get. Um, it's not just to make wines in large volumes. It's like, this is what we have to work with to be able to produce a fantastic wine. Same thing with when you talk about champagne is blending is part of creating a, a house standard. The actual year over year tasting Blue Cricot every single year is a blending component because Mother Nature gives you what you get there. And with, if the Pinot Noir, the Chardonnay are exceptionally ripe or whatever, they need to blend it out. So, you know, it just depends on geographically. Uh, you can have outstanding wines that are blended, outstanding wines that are single varietal. And then the opposite side of the plot specific I think it really has to do with the producer itself. If you have a, the best one is talking about like Clos Bougeau, you know, it's a single plot. And in that Clos, the walled plot, there are significant variations in quality within that, depending on where you are inside that. So just saying that a Clos Bougeau is going to be better than a village wine. It's, it's not right because there are some like really crappy areas in Clos Bougeau at the bottom end of the slope, which is a lot thicker uh, with soil and it collects all the water and the runoff. I think you could get a better village from a no-name place in Burgundy and it'll be better than that particular plot. So I, uh, I think there's exceptions, but um, I think for both of them, it just depends. I don't think there's a yeah. clear-cut way for me. So it sounds that uh, so far all the myths that we have discussed around quality in reality is, you know, wine, it's an art. Uh, and you have so many variables, right? So many things that can go into a wine and make it, make it a jewel because it's the right price point you're looking for, the right taste. And wine is a very personal thing in the end. All these myths really come from the need to have variables that can indicate how to find your bottle of wine. So this has been great discussion on the quality myths that let's move on into protocols of wine drinking. Let's start first with something that comes right off of my head. White wine. Should you serve it chill? Yes or no? I think it depends on the white wine. So if you have a, a really poor quality wine, you want it as cold as it possibly can be. It's like, drinking <laughs> like a light, you know, you want it so cold that you do not taste any of the faults. It's just an alcoholic cold beverage that you're drinking. As far as, you know, a nice Chardonnay, you don't want it to be chilled that far down. You don't want it to be the same temperature as your refrigerator. You want it to sit out because, you know, for me personally, experience with identifying aromas and taste characteristics of a white wine, if it's too cold, you miss out on a lot of stuff, good or bad. I would want it to be actually warmer than normal for a white wine if I'm tasting for quality. If you're having it for dinner, you know, just pulling the bottle out a little sooner uh, from the fridge to be able to cool down a little bit is, is fine too. But uh, but yeah, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to this, but maybe my other two colleagues here will give us another insight. <laughs> yeah, we were literally just talking about this like before the sessions and we were saying like, I think it depends on if it's a like exam circumstance where yeah. this is random drinking. If you're sitting outside the terrace with super sunshine, you want it cold as fuck and 
but while you are sitting in an exam, you don't want that to be so chill that you cannot assess it. And so I think personally, I don't really like doesn't matter exam or not exam. I don't really like white wine chill.、Mm, interesting. For me, interesting. I couldn't sense that much aroma when it's chilled. So to actually taste what wine it is or what's in there, I prefer it's less chill than it should be. So it it can be personal, right? Yeah. So for me, it just depends on tasting or drinking. If I'm、mm. drinking my wine, I want it to be chilled, and especially I used to the before. It's so damn hot. I have everything chilled. I, have, I drink everything chilled. Even my red wine. I'm sorry. I just like to drink. I was gonna say. I'm like to talk. She moved from Singapore. Hot hair. So you were chilling everything. But yeah, just like when you're trying to assess when you are sitting in the exam room, and what I would usually do is just try to warm up the white wine in my palms because. If it is too cold, you can't smell a thing. So sometimes you need to go back and revisit while it's being a little、mm. bit warmed up. True. So yeah, for me, it just like depends on if I'm swallowing it or if I'm spitting it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's my answer. So as you say, like then to summarize this myth, I like how Fiona made the difference. I think、mm. it comes from whether you're drinking or tasting, savoring, and this is not only applicable for professionals who are more, you know, in in more situations where they truly need to assess a wine. I think, like for me personally, I, I'm also like Emily, do not like to. Drink my white chilled, because I want to be able to smell. To me, a smell is part of enjoying wine, and also an important part of tasting it. Like actually feeling the all the qualities of wine. So I really like how you folks demystified this one. It was really clear to me how to go there. All right, I'm gonna go to another myth. You should never drink white wine after you drank red wine. False. Oh, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to share? Someone from Burgundy, you want to share something? I mean, maybe like because when we visit some producers in Burgundy, they will actually started out by tasting reds,、mm-hmm. continue with the white, and I will let the Mister Joe <laughs> to explain why. <laughs> Our professor. <laughs> <laughs> nerd alert! Nerd alert! Nerd alert! So I think because. What you want to do is you want to have a, a clear palate when you're tasting those reds off the bat. So if they're the hallmark of the experience in this particular、uh, domain, you want those reds to be the first thing that go in your palate. If you have the Chardonnays beforehand or the Elgote, you could miss out on some of those characteristics if you push some of the red wines to the end. So yeah, so for me, if the hallmark of the experience is a Pinot Noir, you want to taste those things first. But the interesting、mm-hmm. thing too is. Especially for Burgundy, there's not a lot of tannin. There's not a lot of things that will really corrupt your palate. So if you're tasting Chardonnay after that, which usually Chardonnays are much more full-bodied, anyways, you're not going to have this corruption where you have all this like tannin in your mouth and it's left over like really intense aromas.、Um, you're okay to go on to the Chardonnay. Now, if you try to do that in some of the other places, let's say you know the Northern Rhone, we're talking Syrah. You just you try that first. The rest of the wines are going to taste like Syrah. You know, it's going to really mess you up. So, I think it's really unique for Burgundy, especially. You can do that. You can switch it backwards. Yeah. Interesting. So, what I'm getting from the mystifying this one is that. In reality, what you want to do is be mindful on what is the progression of the wines that you are drinking, so you don't overcast. You know the later wines with what you drink previously. Yep. 
Good. So this is a perfect segue for the next myth, which is, well, basically the myth I want to I want to bring up is the food wine pairing. But let's just start with something very uh, on top of mind for people, right? You do not drink red wine with fish, for example. For me, it's no. I mean, like you can definitely drink red wines with seafood, especially as an Italian wine ambassador. So I'm going to nice plug. <laughs> <laughs> so there are several good Italian like lighter reds that goes extremely well with seafood. Um, for example, like Lambrusco, Ooh. the dry Lambrusco, Lambrusco di Sobara is actually quite well structured and it's a lighter body. So it's actually really, it goes very well with seafood. And I can also think of another great variety coming from Sicily, you know, Sicily is like a seafood country, right? So, yeah. so if they're doing it, then it must be right. Well, so so uh, frappato is actually like uh, they use frappato to make the cera soro di Vittorio. It's also a very light-bodied uh, red wine. It's just like mm. it's fruity, refreshing with a great acidity. I feel like you can go with prom dishes or like yeah. lobster, and also depends on what kind of seafood exactly. we are going to be pairing, right? Yeah. So if it's an oyster, probably not, but for me, there are some great Italian wines that can go well with seafood. I don't know. What do you think? I think for myself personally, like I try few few like red wine with seafood and lots of uh, times it ends up quite well. Mm-hmm. Like especially when I was in Burgundy, I think it's because it's more light body. And also the way they do the plates as well. The fish is like with some sauce or not just like, you know, fish itself. So it goes with the marinade, the herbs. It goes very well with the wines. So I think how the dishes is uh, presented or yeah. the wine is being served, it's also how can it goes well. But I definitely think some red wine goes well with a uh, seafood. Yeah, and those ones that I just mentioned, they should be slightly chilled. So. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to previous yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know, like, what do you think? Yeah, I don't like fish, so... <laughs> so that's why he used to skip it. <laughs> no, no. So I'm actually studying for the Court of Master Sommelier's uh, Certified Sommelier exam. So there is a food and wine component in there, which is really interesting. So I'll do something off the book because I believe whatever you like, just drink it with whatever you want to eat. Best for me. Yeah. So I like, I like Chardonnay and uh, popcorn. That's like my favorite pairing. So like, if you like a random thing with whatever that you're eating, any fish you're eating or whatever, why not pair it? But generally speaking, when you're having a sommelier advise you in a restaurant, they're usually going to gravitate to some type of white wine for you. Uh, Cause that's like the safest bet. Um, to not mess it up. But I, I like this whole thing with Fiona. I like Dex trying out new things. And you know, they always say like, whatever grows together, goes together. So it's, if they drink it with it, why not use it? You know? So, uh, so I think that's cool. So I think like in the end, what I'm getting from this myth and from you folks is that it's about knowing what you're going to eat and how it, it balances with the wine instead of just trying to go a level higher and deciding between the color of your wine, which is white or red. It's more knowing whether you want something a bit more acid to balance, I don't know, like the fat in your food or the heaviness of the spices versus something that it's a little bit lighter and you can enjoy chilled, as Fiona mentioned. <laughs> this has been so much fun. And I think like, 
especially this area, in this area where we are demystifying protocol myths, uh, I'm getting from you folks that the consumer needs to really know what they like and pay attention to those moments where you really hit some amazing pairing, some amazing wine, and start remembering what are the parameters or the dimensions that you really like in your wine. So to close it off this section of the protocol myths, I want to talk about rosé because people have this misconception of rosés only for the summer. If you are Emily and you live in Paris, you go to Provence and you go and drink rosé. <laughs> so, so tell me, is rosé wine only for the summer and by the pool? So no, absolutely not. There's so many different types of rosés. So the one we're talking about right now is, you know, the Provence and the direct press method where very minimal skin contact, if there's no skin contact, in fact, it's just the pressing as soon as they get the grapes into the winery. Uh, but there's other ones where there's a short maceration, where means that the red grapes are actually uh, allowed to macerate on their skins for a little while, get a deeper color, actually have tannins in the wine and great food-friendly wine. That kind of wine that has a little bit longer and deeper color, you don't want to be out in the, the hot sun in Provence with that. You want to be in a restaurant to be able to do that. And actually, in our last event, uh, the 500 Wineries events, we had a claret method, actually from Singales, which means they actually blended red and white grapes together to create a rosé. And that was a really interesting coloration, a really interesting texture. So again, that would be a great outdoor wine, but three different types, completely different types of wines, all considered rosés. Exactly. Like I recently figured rosé is actually good food pairing type of wine. It's not just, you know, you seeing people drinking on the terrace or on the beach. Yeah, I agree. Just like what Joe was saying, that there are some kind of a bigger rosés that are they've had a bit more skin okay. skin context, so there's a bit more structure. So there's this uh very famous sort of like we don't say rosés. It's like a in between rosé and red wine because it's like the stronger rosé is a Cerasoro di Abruzzo. It's just the wine just like that, and I would say. For rosé one, if I am working on the ground as a sommelier, I will actually want to sell more rosé to introduce those non-red wine drinkers because there are a lot of people that are just first getting to know wine. They only started out drinking white wines. But then, like, uh, I would say, like, a rosé one is a, a good gateway towards introducing them, like, expanding their palates. So for me, like a rosé one is, is great. I would drink a rosé all year, rosé all day. So these were myths on the protocol of wine. And I want to then move us to a bit more nerd alert, technical myths. Uh, terroir. Can you taste the minerality of the terroir in your wine? Can you taste chalk? Can you taste stone in the wine? Yes, no, how? What is this about? Chris just mentioned a keyword, minerality. Yeah, minerality. Yeah, our professor, he would lose his mind if we we talked about minerality and said we could taste the minerality. In fact, I just read a book we were on vacation called Vineyards, Rocks, and Soils by Alex Maltzman. And his, it's a wine lover geologist, and he takes on this whole idea of minerality in this book. And he basically debunks the whole thing, which is, it's tough because a lot of 
vineyard owners and wine producers use minerality as a part of their terroir that they can taste and it creates something different than their neighbors and other places in the world. But Alex Maltland's perspective was that the actual minerality or the whetstone is a some type of symbol. It's actually a, a flavor and aroma and a descriptor rather than you can actually taste the soil underneath. Because the way things work, it's you actually have an ion exchange that occurs through the roots. And the only thing that gets absorbed through the roots are actually small, tiny molecules. And they're nothing, there's no way possible that chalk or clay or any of that stuff can be absorbed through because it's so, it's so like micro level that it's impossible. So it's one of those things that you can't taste the minerality. In. And I agree with that. In the Master of Wine program, they actually say that they don't use minerality as well. And because of all the research involved with that. So yeah, so I, but you know, I, I will never tell a vineyard owner, say like, hey, excuse me, uh, you can't say it's minerality because this is, you know, this is how they describe their product. So I'll be really respectful for that. Yeah, I agree. And actually, I just learned it from the Italian Wine Ambassador Program that the mineral terms, the mineral notes that people are talking about could actually come from various possibilities. It could be coming from the sulfites, could be coming from the sunburns. I, I don't want to get into too technical, and, and I don't, and I can't. But like, uh, just like what Joe said, I would never mention it in front of a wine producer. Yeah, yeah I think from the geology's point, it's very important because he actually sees the connection between the soil and what's end up in the glass. The topic of minerality has been talking about for so many years and still like debating. But I think while we communicating with consumer sites, it's also important what else the words should we say to express or explain this kind of sensation? Because lots of people know these terms like minerality. So when we introduce yeah. during a tasting day, they will be, yeah, that's true. But actually, it wasn't so precise saying what we want to say. So I would be more aware when I talk to consumers, maybe articulate more what's in the glass instead of just saying, yeah, the wine is like really mineral. Yeah, and then actually doing a fancy word. Uh, I don't know, have you ever heard of this term called petrichor? No, petrichor. <laughs> you just make that up. I do not. You can Google it, petrichor. So petrichor is so a new term, or maybe it's like a fancy or up and coming word of describing minerality. It's it's said to be the smell that came from like after the first rain, after it has been so dry, you can sense that smell on the ground, and that is petrichor. And some people will use that to describe minerality. So I can, oh wow, just uh, something for you the, to. The Wine and Spirits Education Trust will probably doesn't have that on their lexicon of tasting. <laughs> petrichor. So, Emily, you said that it's really important to help the consumer to have more words to describe minerality. And I think that is very on point. So you folks have some of those words to help folks expand that sensation. Whetstone. That's a good one. Um, sometimes people use like salinity, like it, it's a little salty, like in, in 
and that we can all agree on saying like, I know what salty like, tastes like, or I know what the whetstone we just described smells like, you know, after it rains. So, so the think- whetstone was a surprise to me because when I, to the point of, of Emily, like having more words, every time that I was describing minerality in my wines, the only thing I was thinking was salt, like salty, mm-hmm. like, right. you know, salt and a bit of that iron taste. It's like metallic taste. That's a good descriptor. Yeah, I think the important thing is, is we're creating a language with this whole thing, especially with the Wine Spirits Education Trust. And what we want to do is be able to all understand exactly what the person is sensing in their glass and not be something so obscure as like minerality. Because what you just said, Chris, about minerality is not what I think about minerality. It's not. It's really So it's two different things. So yeah, the better we can to be able to describe something in layman's terms that everybody can understand, the better our whole profession will be. Yeah. And I really want to add on one thing. It's a, I feel like wine education is so important because wine could be very abstract and then especially coming from different cultural backgrounds we have very different tasting experiences we eat different food we drink different drinks from our different cultures but with a proper wine education you can actually communicate at a same level you have the same vocabulary so that's why um, i'm definitely going to continue my wine studies and then that's why i feel like yeah what you're doing right now is really cool yeah, so thank you. <laughs> Just a yeah. quick plug for the Zurich Wine Academy. So we will be releasing some news uh, fairly shortly about some of the upcoming courses and curriculums that we'll be offering here in Zurich, both in person and virtually. So viewers throughout the world uh, can participate. It's a little more difficult when you're in weird time zones uh, than our time zones, but there is the ability to participate. So we're going to have a hybrid teaching method. So stay tuned, the Zurich Wine Academy. Okay, so with this, let's just, let's wrap up this episode of myths about wine with one more, which is wine scores. A wine with a high score from critic means. I should buy it immediately. I think because I, I used to work in wine importer. So for us while we're working, it's very important to find all the uh, grades and the metals the wine gets. So that when we sell the wine or when we introduce the wine, the first thing you introduce to people is like to say, oh, this wine gets 99 from like whatever famous uh, people on the earth. But I think there's a lot of marketing elements in this kind of uh, things, which I didn't find the great place that so much important place in Europe. I see less metal sticker on the wine bottle than I saw in uh, Taiwan. So I don't think it means like the wine you should have to buy. Yeah, because I know a lot of these wine score systems, they only evaluate mm-hmm. the wines that are being sold in the United States, some of them. And so it's a little bit unjust. And also you need to send your wine to them. You can either send your wine to them or they would reach out to you and then yeah. stuff. I think you have to submit your wine to them. And that means money. So you actually need yeah. to pay for your wine to be scored. Mm-hmm. So that somehow creates a little bit of just it's just not very just not very fair fair so yeah. that just makes you doubt the is the really the scoring system really dependable is it really uh, worth you paying attention to so i don't know like what do you think joe 
Yeah. So um, it's interesting between the United States and here, because in the United States, when I did wine events in my previous life in the finance industry, every single time I would always mention the score to the people uh, because that was important to them. If it had a higher score, it was a better wine for the consumers. Now, that was also at the beginning part of my education for wine. And here we've done 10 events, 15 events this year. I've never even looked at his scores or I, I, a lot of them don't even come with scores because they're only, you know, they're exported in a few countries. It's not the United States, so they don't even do that. So I see a significant difference between the United States and here. But here's the problem with some of these, these ratings. So one particular rate, they add 500 to 800 new wine ratings every week to their database. So if you have a team of five, 10 people helping you, that's, let's say 10, that's 50 wines per week. That's a lot of wine that you're tasting week in, week out. You train them to taste in your method, but it's not going to be the same palate as that person that's their name is on there, right? So, you know, obviously there's checking, but that can make a significant difference in price and significant difference in consumption. But then it's more interesting too, the fact that if you have somebody like Alan Meadows for the Berghound, which I'm a big fan of, if you get a 90 from him, that's huge. Like that is so amazing. You have a 90, but he only scored two wines at a hundred as DRC 1945 and another one. So I think there's just so much variability in the scoring so much tasting that who knows if it's standardized. I think it gets back to this point of education and going out and tasting and learning what you like and buying what you like and ignore the noise of the scores. I think that's like the biggest takeaway from this, from my perspective. Yeah. And also to your point, I think like if you don't have the context of who the critic is and you know, how hard it is to get the 90 from this one critic versus, you know, that from this other critic, it's just very easy to mislead and not choose a wine that is good for, for your taste. All right, folks. Well, with this, uh, I want to wrap it up saying it was great to discuss some of the myths of wine that we all heard at some point, whether we are professionals or just regular consumer. It was a pleasure to have Fiona in the podcast as our guest. Until next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.